I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And welcome to the Napoleon Assist. We are back for the second instalment of Napoleon's Greatest Battle. And I am joined by three brilliant people, all of whom have featured on the Napoleon Assist before. So it's a pleasure to welcome back some people who are rapidly becoming staples of this podcast. I'm joined once again by Marcus Cribb, the manager of Absidy House, and a regular commentator on the podcast History Hack, who also featured earlier this month in a debate with Luke Daly Groves on Napoleon and his reputation. Marcus, how are you doing? Hello, very well. Thanks for having me back. I really enjoyed the uh, debate with Luke. Lots of new uh, sides coming out of that. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to this one, which is slightly different. We also have Dr Will Fletcher, a lecturer at King's College London and a specialist in the conduct of war during this period, who featured in a discussion on Napoleon's way of waging war. Will, how are you doing? Hey Zach, yeah good thanks and um, thanks for having me back and good to have the opportunity to go into a bit more detail things we were talking about last time. And finally but by no means least we are joined by Dr Vanya Bellinger, a lecturer in defence studies at the United States Air Force who is an expert on the work of Carl von Clausewitz and who featured prominently in the Waterloo Remembered series. Vanya, how are you? Doing good, thanks for having me. No, it's always great to have you back. So for those of you who didn't listen to the first instalment, I firstly have to question what you were doing with your life to have not been following the Napoleon Assistant Napoleon Month religiously. But I'll, I'll overlook that and re-explain the agenda for you. Each of my guests will have five to seven minutes in which to talk about one particular battle which they are championing as being Napoleon's greatest. It will be for them to put forward the case on why that battle specifically qualifies as the greatest and the criteria that they are using for that. I'll then ask some characteristically awkward questions as the host before we open it up to a cross discussion amongst my different panelists as we kind of probe how good or bad our selections have been. So let's start, let's say ladies first. Vanya, what have you chosen as Napoleon's greatest battle? I have chosen the Battle of Akule. Um, that's November 15 to 17, uh, 1796. Uh, for um, 
you know, for the public mind, that's the battle where Napoleon is waving the flag. That's the battle famously uh, crossing the bridge. We have several paintings, the young Napoleon with the flag. So that's, that's, the, that's that battle that I have chosen. The first reason I've chosen, it's um, kind of a little bit sentimental. I used to live in Italy. Uh, and these days I am, um, like everybody else, I am uh, mostly at home and uh, I miss traveling and I miss Italy a lot and I've been uh, really annoying everybody around me with stories about my time in Italy. So also the listeners of Napoleonicist, I'm sorry, um, I, I cannot help myself these days. This is also the, the other reason why I have chosen this battle. It, it is a strategic victory fought under um, almost impossible tactical conditions. And Bonaparte had again turned back superior enemy forces and um, maintained the siege of Mantua, because the, the main reason is the, the siege of Mantua. That's, that's the connection with this battle. And the battle outlines several features significant for understanding Napoleon, the reasons for his success, but also teaching us something about warfare and strategy in general. Uh, these are Napoleon's personal proactiveness and heroism, the role of secondary theater, uh, Napoleon's approach seeking to separate and defeat coalition forces, and the role of um, iconography and propaganda in war. So to, to understand, I will start first with the, with the idea of the second, secondary theater, because this, uh, the, uh, we think now about the Italian campaign as uh, the, the, the premier campaign um, of these early years, but actually it's a secondary theater. The main theater at that point is actually the Rhine theater. Uh, these are where the main French armies are and also where the, the, the Austrian army uh, armies are. N Napoleon gets like a small force. He's appointed um, in, in Italy sort of um, to the underbelly of Austria, and he has something like 36,000 um, uh, men, uh, pretty bad conditions, but Napoleon pulls a couple of victories. We have Lodi and so on, the Piedmontese are pretty early thrown out of the conflict, and he has to fight only the Austrians at that time. Um, what he does, um, he takes um, uh, the, the Austrians mainly gather in, um, the garrison of Mantua. Mantua, even if you've been today, it's in, a, an amazing fortress to see. So the Austrians are actually in Mantua. Um, Napoleon is around Mantua. Uh, and then for the, for the Austrians, it becomes this really obsession to relieve Mantua. Uh, and we have first attempt, second attempt. The second attempt, actually, pretty big Austrian force, uh, force attacks, you know, to relieve um, the force, uh, to relieve the garrison from outside. But it's unsuccessful when actually the Austrians, 30,000 Austrians, lock themselves up in, in Mantua. Uh, so it looks like pretty okay for Napoleon. And now it's the moment where the things turn around and Napoleon's position at that point is so far from certain. Uh, his forces are reduced to some 28,000 people uh, ravaged by disease, hunger, unrest in the camps. And then we see that the Austrians um, sent pretty significant force from the east 
28,000 troops under uh, General Josef Alvinci. And then we have a second force coming from, uh, from Tirol through the uh, passages and a DG Valley, and that's under Paul Davidovich with some 20,000 troops. And of course, there is a significant force in Mantua. So that's David Chandler where he's talking about Napoleon being like a juggler, keeping three balls in the air at the same time. So this is the how the this is um, the stage for for Arcule. And we have then the other feature, which is uh, Napoleon's, that's this classical move of preempting the enemy and destroying them, um, destroying the enemy forces while they're still separated. In uh, 1796, we're seeing that Napoleon is still developing this move. Actually, Clausewitz, one of the last campaign studies Clausewitz did was a, a, this campaign, this is also one reason I picked it because we see how Napoleon is in the making. He's becoming Napoleon in this campaign. So Napoleon decides to take the, the risk and attack Alvinci, the bigger force that is coming from the east. So imagine that that's like Venice, Padova, Vicenza, uh, Verona. So that, that line in Italy, so they're coming on that line. So what Napoleon will try is to um, cut them off and trap them between uh, Vicenza and Verona. And it's a, a place called San Bonifacio today. If you take the train, that's like a small stop on the local train. You will always be surprised why people get off the train at San Bonifacio. They're actually going to see Arcole. The, the, the difficulty here is because you have actually two rivers you have to cross. So you have the Adige River and then you have a small tributary, which is Alpone, um, Alpone River. And Arcole, the village of Arcole is on the eastern shore of it. Um, so uh, Alpone River itself is not formidable obstacle, um, but um, it has really high dikes. So it's uh, virtually impassable except by bridge. And this is uh, where Napoleon attacks the first day uh, through that bridge, um, kind of unsuccessfully, but that's the moment where he's waving the flag. And then only on the third day through some maneuvering and actually um, putting troops on two flanks, on the two, uh, two flanks of the bridge, um, he manages to defeat the Austrians and uh, turn them around. So we see the proactiveness with him on a battlefield, but then we also see in that battle um, the role of propaganda. Uh, actually, when Napoleon was waving that flag, there is some debate, was he actually on a bridge or just on the ditch waving the flag? Actually, the, the whole thing was unsuccessful, that attack when Napoleon was waving the flag, that's actually unsuccessful. There is several more attacks, but in the, in the public mind is basically Napoleon waves the flag and the troops storm the bridge in defeat. So that's, that's the story. And that's what I keep telling my students is what happens on the battlefield and how it's perceived after that are two different things. And tactical battle, you have to, the tactical battle not always, um, um, not always becomes a strategic, um, a strategic uh, victory. 
but through, through the propaganda and uh, the myth of Arcule, the whole myth of Napoleon is, is born, like it's maybe not born, but really strengthened. And thanks to, actually, Arcule does not finish the campaign. Um, the campaign continues, but uh, the Austrians make some, several other mistakes. And this is why we don't uh, Rivoli or the other battles of that campaign remember that much again there is no there is no these great pictures we don't have these great paintings of, of Napoleon so that's my pitch thanks very much it's an interesting one to start off with as well awkward question incoming here yeah. as you've just said the propaganda surrounding our call, and particularly that episode with Napoleon and the flag, and is he actually just tackled into a ditch to shelter from incoming artillery fire, etc. It, it all kind of eclipses the point of the battle itself, and to an extent has probably exaggerated the significance of that particular fight. Is that a problem in terms of trying to interpret whether or not this is the greatest battle? I mean, yes, maybe for um, for many military historians that might be a problem, but um, okay, my background is also in journalism. So um, for me, it's not. For me, this is, um, this is part of the battle. This is the, the part of the, um, what makes a great battle, great battle. It's like we have so many other battles that we think as decisive battles, but they're actually not. Like in military terms, they are not decisive battles, but it's what comes after that and how, how the battles change it's the narrative, change the, the perception of the people. You know, uh, it's not only the, the commanders on the field or the soldiers on the field, it's the larger population back home. So the point I wanted to make is that great battle, what makes a battle great is also the narrative. Of course, you have to have the, the reality on the ground. Um, facts have to be made on the ground. But in many ways, um, what makes a great battle is also the narrative after that. that that's great. Um, I think we will probably pick up on this in the follow-up discussion, but let's take it to, to somebody else now. Marcus, what have you chosen for your greatest battle? And I have to say this is quite odd because you've now, as the person who's not particularly keen on Napoleon, got to praise Napoleon. And I do worry that this is going to kind of cause such a bitter taste in your mouth that you're going to have some kind of adverse reaction. But take it away anyway. I know. I'm, I'm choking on my tea, but thanks for asking anyway. Um, yeah, it is, it is difficult. Napoleon's greatest battle. Hence one of the reasons that I've gone with Toulon. Now, I can't ever admonish that Napoleon was a fantastic military commander, very capable, uh, very, very dynamic. Uh, but I would stop short of just a genius, certainly. But at Toulon, we see that dynamism of a young, very young uh, Napoleon. And if we're going to discuss great and legacy, then we see a little flavour of everything, both leading from the front, micromanaging, coming up with new ideas, having that dynamic energy and a controversial ending, which... Um, does actually go into some atrocities, which, in my humble opinion, mires Napoleon's campaign throughout and is really Napoleon's legacy of slaughtering civilians and such like. So that's why I've gone with Toulon. 
Uh, Toulon, uh, so it's a, it's a siege, um, so it's got a, a longer date, so it's the autumn from August to December 1793. And Napoleon himself says, it was in Toulon my reputation began. A bit of background is the south of France, especially, uh, but certainly some other areas in the Vendée, were far more uh, loyalist, as they would call themselves, but royalists, um, to, against the French Revolution. And you can't really blame them. Yes, the Anjan regime uh, wasn't perfect, but by this point, um, the French Revolution was actually clamping back down on anyone who disagreed with them. And uh, obviously it leads to the terrors and the mass executions, the guillotines. So it has a certain very dark side to the Liberté, Galaté, Fraternité. Um, it's, it very, it's very strange circumstances. The town rose up and invited in the nearby fleets of Spain and Britain into Toulon Harbour to reinforce them. An army was quickly dispatched and it was really hurried. Um, the French Revolutionary Army was sent down there and then basically everyone they could muster in the south of France. That meant the leader at the time was Jean-Francois Jean Carteau. He was actually one of Louis XVI's um, court painters and had zero uh, military training or experience, but because of reputation uh, as a loyalist to the the revolutionary cause, and he was fervently a revolutionary, which I think is fascinating because he was a, he, he painted the king so many times. Um, he was put as commander. Now, he, now with no experience, uh, he was leading this army of the Alps. He was meant to have a full colonel, as a colonel of his artillery. He was actually wounded on journey down there and nominated by a fellow Corsican in the French parliament. Um, Napoleon was sent down there. Napoleon was just 24 years old and but a mere captain at the time. So he's gonna come onto a very quick rise by the end of this story. He's actually gonna end up as a, um, a general of division. So this is where he gets his promotion. In uh, Toulon, we've got a strongly Spanish force, force majority of them, over 7,000, backed up by Genoese and Sardinian troops, along with French royalists and British. The British army there, a few thousands, includes 37 um, ships of His Majesty's Royal Navy, including Admiral Hood on HMS Victory. So if it all went very wrong, with the Battle of Trafalgar would have been a very different story. HMS Victory, first-rate um, ship is there. The city soon put uh, under siege and a stranglehold is put across. The Allies, especially the British, have some outlying forts on a peninsula near La Seine. Uh, and these forts are huge bastions that dominate the harbour. If anyone captured these, they actually would be able to bombard the Allied and British uh, ships in the harbour. And it's, it's Napoleon that spots this as a weakness. Now, he advocates for a very quick, decisive early attack onto these positions. There's a redoubt on the landward side of these two forts. And if he storms in, basically he says that we can hot shots, which is where you red heat cannonballs to set fire to uh, wooden ships uh, into the harbour. He advocates this position uh, and the commander, uh, General Carto, the painter, is very cautious. And so he only sends in 400 men to do this storming, where Napoleon asked for several thousand. 400 men inevitably fail, it's far too small, and it gives the Allies um, an idea that they, how vulnerable that position is. So it's then reinforced and they actually end up calling it a little Gibraltar because it's on a pi uh, pinnacle, it's on high ground and it's very well defended now. They throw up a uh, fort in only a few days. 
This leads to a huge problem. Nobody then wants to actually go and fight against this largely British fort uh, on the hill. Now, this is where you've got to start giving Napoleon a lot of credit. He spotted the weak point. It's been reinforced and no one else wants to fight there. He throws in another fort as a counter bastion. Nobody really wants to, ma to man it because it's sort of basically being a death sentence. So he renames the fort, the fort for men without fear. And all of a sudden he's quite um, inundated with volunteers from these revolutionaries who want to prove their worth. He then leads um, the attacks uh, onto that, but the British counter uh, the initial assaults and actually managed to get out and spike the French guns. So it is actually unsuccessful initially. After a couple of weeks of waiting, on the, uh, on, in the middle of December, Napoleon actually is one of the leaders into the main assault onto this uh, peninsula. He's in the second wave. He's certainly not the most senior commander at this point. Even people who come into his later campaigns, such as uh, Marshal Victor, as he later becomes, are actually leading uh, battalions. He rides in on a horse. I'm not sure it's the wisest decision. Uh, and in the dead of night, uh, in heavy rain, which they thought would uh, stop the British guns, which works very effectively, and it ends up being hand-to-hand -hand combat. He has his horse shot from under him, so it shows slightly unwise decision. And he ends up fighting hand-to-hand -hand against a British sergeant who bayonets him through the thigh. Now, a couple of inches either way, uh, it could have hit the main artery and then how history would have been different. Slowly, the main stranglehold on the town actually closens in. Now, Napoleon plays a lot less of a role in this. He's been very dynamic in throwing up forts in only about two days, but now he has to convalesce because he's being wounded. In doing so, as the stranglehold comes in, uh, the Allies realise that their position is untenable and they're going to evacuate the city. The Spanish and the British especially, they start burning and destroying their naval stores, especially their gunpowder. This starts to lead to a mass panic and the, uh, the French loyalist, loyalist citizens uh, decide to try to flee. The Allies agree to take them, as many as they can, and they take about 14,000 inside uh, the ships. But in the panic of doing so, when people realise that the ships were going to be filled, uh, many are crushed or pushed into the water and drowned. So it's a really sad state of affairs. Eventually, once the Allies have basically evacuated and the French royalists' uh, positions are no longer going to be defensible, they know what's coming and it starts to worry them. But the revolutionary army storms in and almost immediately uh, from that day and the next day, following about 10 days, um, executionary squads, some of the executions, both uh, public and in firing squads are set up. About 200 civilians are killed, all of these unarmed, including uh, women and old men. Uh, and around, it's hard to estimate these things, but around a thousand of these defensive civilians are killed. Now, it's always said it's unclear how involved in these uh, Napoleon was. So I'm just going to very quickly read from Sir Walter Scott at the end. He wrote a letter to the younger Robespierre congratulating them and himself on the execution of these aristocrats. And he signed it Brutus Bonaparte Saint-Culotte, which is a a French revolutionary term without trousers. If he actually commanded the, at this execution, he had a poor apology that he must do so himself or perish. 
and the fact the letter had been genuine. So it's always debated how much, but he signs this letter uh, with Napoleon Bonaparte uh, sans culottes. So his revolutionary fervor means it's quite likely that uh, we see in one a great dynamic uh, artillery commander, uh, Napoleon's darker side very early on. And I was just listening uh, earlier to the first part of this debate, and many people say it was, uh, it was after Egypt, it was after he crowns himself that I start to go off uh, Napoleon. And I just think it's interesting that he's always got this kind of dark side that we need to be wary of. But he quickly rises through the ranks, and Napoleon is an artillery commander at heart. He's a very, very good at it. He knows how to sight his guns and sight some of them personally. So this is where he's very good at that. He, he throws up not only the main force that I was talking about, but about three others in a very short space of time. He has an eye for the ground, has an eye for the defences, and also knows how to motivate the troops and get the best out of them. Things like renaming the forts to work as uh, reverse psychology against the French army. So because of that, because it's an early one, because it's dynamic and a siege, I uh, argue that Toulon is one of Napoleon's greatest battles. I have a slight problem with Toulon, though, and I, I can't believe I'm about to say this of you, Marcus, but I wonder if you've given him too much credit here. Because as you oh, never said, said that was me and Napoleon. <laughs> like I say, I mean, I, I can't quite believe the words have come out of my mouth, but like you said, he's not in command gets a bayonet through the thigh. Well, that's not particularly genius on his part. Um, so clearly not a brilliant fighter in terms of hand-to-hand -hand combat. The reason Toulon matters so much is because of Allied screw-ups. It's because of the failure of Allied commanders within the town that they haven't made the preparations to burn the fleet in the event of evacuation, which therefore means that the majority of the French Mediterranean fleet can be recaptured more or less intact. And had that not been the case, then Toulon wouldn't have mattered, really. It was the fleet that was the prize at Toulon. Um, and as you say, not overall commander. So yes, he's responsible for that initial phase of operations and crucial, no doubt they were. But in terms of the bigger picture, there are other people there. And for all that I recognize a nice uh, primary source there to kind of back it all up, He's writing to Robespierre. He's been writing constantly to Robespierre the whole time, lobbying, saying that um, his his superior commanders are effectively cretins, and he calls them fools, and uh, they are removed. And in fact, um, Gatto, the the painter, is later executed. I mean, about twenty years later, but he is executed because of his um, revolutionary beliefs. I I just kind of wonder if it was inevitable he was going to say that he was the big cheese it was all down to him this is very kind of napoleon if if you're a napoleon skeptic you see things there that, that are very typical of the man kind of the propaganda the spin i i'm just not convinced i'm, I'm sorry I mean, to say this i'm that's, not convinced. that's napoleon all over um i, I i'm thinking of our coal and nearly all the sources that come out now say that he wasn't on the bridge. He was probably about 50 metres away and waving the flag, and then he was bundled into a ditch and got money. I've, I saw documentaries even today going out there on social media, which show reenactments for American TV, largely, of him charging the flag. They've always got this really bad wig on. 
of him charging across the bridge, waving this flag, and then looking desperate as he, these men are shot down around him. And they never really quite explain why he doesn't carry on the charge. He just, because I don't think he was there. Um, but it's, it's a fantastic story. And Toulon, this junior 24-year-old captain, I mean, that is young, step, stepping in when it's needed. Probably was you know, there's a lot of other people around. By the point of the main attack, he's a major. And because of his letter to Robespierre, by the end, he's a brigade um, commander. Napoleon, I said it in our debate with Luke, um, Napoleon the Great, question mark. You know, he's the master of spin and propaganda. And to do that at 24 years old, I mean, it's a bold move to write to a revolutionary government who are quite happy with the old guillotine to uh, tell them that actually everybody else is an idiot and I'm the good one. Because all they've got to do is read that the other way around and they'll be removing him as the problem child, basically. So I think it's a bold strategy and uh, it paid off. It certainly paid off. Um, yeah, not, not very good in hand-to-hand combat. Definitely would question riding in on a siege in a horse to try to get in amongst. Um, <laughs> but actually one of the final commanders I quite like the link is uh, Delaborde. Delaborde is one of the generals who ends, actually ends up uh, commanding the attack. He's a really competent commander. And as the little link in, uh, he's the commander at both Relisa, uh, fighting a rearguard action against Wellington in his first and ends up uh, fighting at Vimero uh, very shortly after and is very competent. So he's kind of there throughout as well. So we've got to give credit to them. But as you go with larger, Napoleon is the overall um, commander of the large armies, then surely we've got to give commander to his core commanders because of the core system, he delegates a lot of responsibility. So especially when we look at some battles like Borodino, Napoleon is like kind of lethargic in the rear at that point, and his subordinates do the fighting. So if we give credit that way round, then uh, we've got to give credit when he's down at the lower level and his senior commanders are making mistakes. So that's why I would say too long. Yeah, thanks very much for that, Marcus. It's an interesting one, and I, I think we'll probably pick that up in in the next part but i want to go to will as our third and final contributor to this will you've chosen jena auerstadt as yours yes indeed um some people may see it as cheating taking two battles but um i definitely think you can't uh, treat one without looking at the other so i've um decided to go for that um i thought i'd just outline a couple of things just um to put into context my argument um firstly Following on from our previous uh, podcast, obviously very much treating this mainly in terms of him as a military commander rather than the sort of bigger picture grand strategy side of things, which I'd ultimately say was kind of disastrous for him in the end and the sort of comeback of the, the Prussians. So, um, but in the in the military campaign and battle sense, I'm sort of treating this as one of his greatest battles. Um, and it's up to sort of listeners as to whether you can uh, treat campaigns and battles in isolation or whether it's an intrinsic part of what you're trying to achieve but um, I'm going to treat it just in isolation. Um, there are a number of sort of issues throughout the, the campaign and battle which are a problem um, for Napoleon, um, in, in mainly intelligence related um, but I'm going to sort of talk about those a bit um, during my main points but um, even with those I'm going to argue it's his greatest battle and then finally I was just going to say that Obviously, there's various lower level commanders. Um, I know some listeners may think were obviously crucial to the um, outcome of the battle. But at the end of the day, I think as Napoleon was the overall commander in that theatre, he ultimately should take 
um, the credit for the success of the campaign and battle. Um, like with most uh, commanding officers or generals, um, they should sort of take the credit or also um, take the blame for uh, the ultimate success or failure. So I think um, Napoleon sort of deserves um, this as his sort of victory, even though there are other clearly important people which will become evident. Um, but overall, I think it's a great demonstration of Napoleon's operational art um, at perhaps its sort of apex or climax um, of his career. And I think um, him sort of crushing the old Prussian way of fighting wars was a crucial moment in um, the Napoleonic Wars and for warfare more generally. So um, essentially, obviously the battles of Jena Auerstadt um, come as the climax of his 1806 campaign. I mean, I just wanted to sort of put that into a bit of context to really highlight why the battles are so important. Um, so I'm going to take the campaign in sort of the three phases um, with the battles, middle phase. Um, the, so firstly, um, the sort of advanced contact phase or um, the manoeuvre phase of the campaign. Um, it's very interesting. Um, Napoleon obviously um, does this previously, but he moves and moves rapidly um, to start the campaign. And in this case, invade Saxony from the from the south. Um, as a major strategic obstacle for him, which is um, a large forest um, called the Thuringwald, um, and he manages effectively to uh, cross this uh, very well in three large columns, and is a famous sort of strategy and um, more formation that Napoleon employed called the Battalion Square, which was um, effectively in a, in a large scale, um, kind of equivalent of a, a, an infantry square, but in a large scale, his core arranged in sort of diamond formation so they could mutually support each other and in, in this case um, he adapted that to be three columns crossing this forest um, and he moved his essentially nine corps uh, through there which consists of six French corps um, his guard plus Murat's cavalry and some Bavarians um, to make up his nine corps and it was impressive because he started off on a sort of 200 kilometer front and then had to narrow down um, to 45 kilometers to cross the wood before um, going out the other side and going out to 60 kilometer front. And this changing of front size, I thought, um, was a particularly important aspect, uh, which would lead to the Battle of Jena Auerstadt. And so that first phase, the maneuver phase, was really um, crucial to setting up um, the Battle of Jena Auerstadt. Um, so this, the second phase, the battle itself, um, very interesting how this comes about because. Napoleon essentially um, really doesn't understand what's going on, although he kind of thinks he, he has a bit of an idea, but he has completely the wrong idea and doesn't appreciate, even when he's fighting, um, that he's not facing the main um, Prussian-Saxon army. And this is sort of um, a crucial point that he thinks he's managed to pin down the main force that he needs to defeat in sort of classic Napoleonic style in the decisive battle. Um, and obviously this could be a criticism of, of Napoleon and um, that he didn't understand what was going on. But I'd sort of argue that the, the Prussian Saxons also um, crucially didn't understand where Napoleon's main um, thrust was coming from. <laughs> and so basically no one knew what the hell was going on and everyone was in total confusion. Um, and Brunswick in the north thought him, him when he was facing just Davy's call was actually fighting the main French um, force. And so bo both sides didn't really know what was going on, sort of classic sort of fog of war um, side of things. So I don't think Napoleon can be pulled up too much for that. And in some ways, him managing to 
secure such a decisive victory despite that kind of adds to his um, credit if you turn it that way around. Um, but so Napoleon was facing um, essentially three um, armies um, and in the end he would um, personally take on the two smaller armies um, at Jena whilst in the north um, Davy's third corps uh, took on the main uh, Prussian army under Brunswick, uh, Duke Brunswick um, and so these two battles were raging at the same time as each other, um, both for about 10 hours um, before the conclusion um, of those two battles. Um, so Napoleon at Jena in the south, um, he does a very good job of sort of concentrating his army um, to face um, what turns out to be the smaller of the, the two uh, formations he's fighting against. And during the course of the battle feeds in a number of corps um, and he starts with 46,000 and that uh, increases to 96,000 by the end of the battle, uh, troops that Napoleon has. Um, so Napoleon, and more to the point, his staff do a good job of um, coordinating, in the main, um, the reinforcement of his position to try and defeat um, the enemy. Um, famously, Bernadotte's first corps um, so kind of gets caught in the middle of Jena and Auerstadt. Uh, Auerstadt to the north, Davu's fighting on his own there. Um, for much of the time, um, and Bernadotte gets a sort of a bit of an app, well, what he interprets as an ambiguous order and doesn't commit to either battle um, in the kind of thing um, that we famously see with Derlon and then Grouchy in the Hundred Days campaign years later. Um, and uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, but it's interesting how even without Bernadotte at either battle, uh, Napoleon manages to um, secure the victory. Um, but yeah, so. Um, the flexibility of the core system means Napoleon manages to um, concentrate uh, his force. There's a number of issues that happen during the battle, which again, Napoleon could be criticised for, um, but I think with all the sort of frictions and fogs of war that Clausewitz himself write about, um, Napoleon can't necessarily be blamed for this. Um, famously, Ney joins the battle and in true Ney style, goes crashing in and sort of preemptively attacks um, the Prussian-Saxon army, and um, this is a bit of an issue, and Napoleon ends up sending in troops to sort of rescue uh, Ney's attack and sort of pulls back for a bit of a pause. Um, before then, uh, about 12.30 in the battle, Napoleon's ready to launch um, quite a large um, attack and really the decisive point of the battle. Um, interestingly, sort of committed about 54,000 troops in the battle, and then he has this huge reserve of 42,000 troops that he assembles, um, in, including uh, Murat's cavalry, uh, Sult's corps, Ney's corps, um, and from sort of 1230 onwards until three, um, he commits those um, to really secure victory at Jena, whilst, as I say, Davu is struggling um, up in the north, um, doing quite a good job of um, containing uh, Duke of Brunswick's uh, army. Um, I think ultimately um, the battle is very successful for Napoleon, um, Jena itself. Um, the Prussian Saxon army um, has 25,000 casualties, um, so about 47% of its strength, um, which is obviously a huge uh, blow to the, the Prussian Saxons, whilst Napoleon only has 5% casualties, around 5,000, so a huge mismatch there. So Napoleon does a good job of that. Um, in the north, obviously at Auerstadt, um, it's much more powerful. Uh, the Prussians lose about 20% and Davu loses about 26%. Um, but in a way, that has to be done in order for Napoleon 
uh, to fight his own contained battle with Davu holding off um, the Duke of Brunswick. So overall, this sort of the operational flexibility of the core system means um, that Napoleon can fight his classic concentrated uh, decisive battle in the south, um, even though it's a much smaller force. And this really decides the matter, even though it's not the biggest army, um, but the crushing defeat really sends the, the Prussians into retreat to the north. Um, so that's um, a cru crucial point in the battle is, uh, or the battles is Napoleon's victory at Jena. Um, and then the third stage of the campaign just wanted to highlight um, is the exploitation phase. And this has gone down very famously in sort of annals of, annals of military history and studied fairly widely, but it's um, Napoleon's pursuit into Prussia is um, very famous. Um, Bernadotte, who I was talking about earlier, who didn't get committed to either battle, um, risked being court-martialed after um, not helping either, either battle. But in actual fact, it, his uh, fresh troops turn out to be very useful and Bernadotte gets away with it um, because they can be used to pursue the Prussian army. And Napoleon's um, exploitation of the battle is um, a key aspect of why this was so successful because he's sort of relentless in pushing his um, French army, the Grand Armée North, um, chasing down the Prussians um, and it essentially leads to around 125,000 um, total loss to the, the Prussians um, when they were operating with around 160,000 in Saxony for the campaign. So a huge numerical defeat um, on the Prussians. Um, but I think overall, um, taking all three of those phases in um, together, the key point is how humiliating the campaign was for the Prussians. Um, they'd been used to um, the, you know, Frederick the Great system that had been uh, so well demonstrated in the Seven Years' War. And this completely turned that on its head and showed what sort of huge citizen armies could do um, with sort of effective command and staff systems. And um, this was the sort of the key point of the campaign that Napoleon proved not just to the Prussians, but to Europe more generally, that um, he could defeat sort of arguably the greatest military power there had been. So interesting, um, the Prussian officers um, who were um, at the battle, Prussian army officers, so obviously Clausewitz famously, and um, was there and it formed much of his thinking. Um, but Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, who are much more senior to Clausewitz, uh, two senior Prussian staff officers um, very much learnt from um, Jena Auerstadt and were in, uh, key to the reform of the Prussian um, army and system of war. And this essentially would turn back around to being um, again, fighting against Napoleon in sort of a similar style to him um, years later um, that would sort of lead to his downfall in the end. But it was absolutely crucial moment in the Napoleonic Wars which saw uh, Napoleon crush the Prussian um, army. So just to sum up, um, I think Napoleon sort of demonstrated um, his core system could be used um, extremely effectively um, through the diff different phases, the sort of manoeuvre phase. Uh, this works out very well, even though he doesn't necessarily pick up on the most, uh, the biggest um, part of the army he's facing. Um, he, that shows actually the flexibility of um, the core system that they can switch and change uh, between fighting different size uh, formations easily. Um, he brings back the decisive battle. Um, admittedly, he defeats the smaller force, but um, the important job is done, which is uh, defeating the Prussians and making them retreat. And then the exploitation um, of that battle is um, the key aspect. And overall, I think 
Napoleon would very much agree that luck played a large part um, in the campaign. Um, but essentially, even if it was luck, um, Napoleon kind of created his own luck match of the time. And I think um, that was a large part of why he was able to win. And ultimately, yeah, Jena Auerstadt was his greatest battle. Thanks for that, Will. Um, the thing that strikes me is a lot of the success, and this is merely mouthed of me, I'll, I'll be honest, because Jena is just so apocalyptically bad for the Prussians that it's very hard to take issue with it. But a lot of the significance of Jena Arstadt, as you kind of pointed to in, in what you've just said, is in the pursuit phase, is in that relentless kind of pushing and taking them apart and not giving them the chance to regroup. Um, and that's where a number of the losses come in for them. But you kind of said it yourself that Napoleon got a little bit lucky in that there was Bernadotte's corps which hadn't been committed to either, really, either Jena or Auerstadt, because of sort of luck. You know, that, that the ambiguity of that order meant that they were fresh, whereas they wouldn't normally have been. So isn't that kind of a problem, that he almost got lucky in the fact that he had men spare when they should have been committed? who were then fresh to conduct that pursuit in the way that they did. And if that hadn't been the case, then, and if his plan had played out in the way that he'd intended, he wouldn't have been able to pursue quite so vigorously. And so the scale of that success would have been reduced. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a fair point. I mean, I think the main issue would have been if Davio had been defeated without Bernadotte sort of coming to his aid, and that could have really turned the campaign. Um, in terms of the following up, I mean, it's a different one to argue whether his army would have been able to, because essentially they were the majority, the rest of his army were soon sort of on the move and moving into Prussia and all had to themselves um, take part in that exploitation and pursuit. So I don't think it would have made a huge difference, but it was just in that initial phase, it was very useful having Bernadotte um, fresh. Um, Napoleon did actually manage to keep his guard fairly fresh. So that would have been something he could have potentially thrown straight in um, and they were really frustrated at Jena not to be called on to sort of make the decisive um, you know, movement in the battle and um, so he did have that in reserve so um, potentially he could have switched to using those although arguably he might not have wanted to in that sort of pursuit phase um, but yeah it, it was lucky but I think as I said he often created his own luck and sort of managed to use that to his advantage so at the end of the day I think yes it was lucky but um, he made the most of that um, as was shown in the exploitation. Okay, well, let me give you folks the opportunity to critique each other's choices then. Um, and because we started with Vanya, we'll, we'll collectively start on her now. Um, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so apologies, Vanya. Um, oh, I'm going to throw it over to, to you two, uh, Will and Marcus. What are your, your thoughts on our coal and whether or not it clarifies? classifies as a greatest battle? I think it all comes back down to the bridge with Arcole. Whether we're viewing that as Napoleon's like propaganda and spin, or if he's actually leading the charge. So, but he can't have it both ways. I'm afraid he can't be both the brave man leading the, the charge and not there, so he's got the propaganda. And I think it's more likely he's coming down on the marketing and the propaganda and the spin then leading the charge at this case. If you look at comparing it with Toulon, it's very firmly in the second wave and not the first wave. 
And I think with our, you know, with our coal, it's very likely he was nearby, but not there. And that's what a lot of sources are saying. So that's why I always think our coal is very interesting. But you say the Battle of our coal to somebody, and before, I mean, especially myself, you think of anything else, the wider battle, the manoeuvres, the enemy, the forces of position, you say, which? And it's because, I mean, I've got Walter Scott with one hand and young, even yeah. we were just saying, looks <laughs> like Rod Stewart on the front. Um, so it's, it's having a both on hair, Rod Stewart. But that's him, the full picture of that is him with a flag in his hands. Mm. And uh, is he actually leading the charge? He's always leading the charge, I think. I, I smell Napoleon propaganda all over our coal. And if that's I mean, great, then that's great. I, I think in a way that whole episode with the flag is like a... It's not actually the most important moment of the battle. That's actually after that, it sees on that. Because actually the, the, um, the first day, the second day, they keep attacking that bridge with enormous um, casualties and so on. And actually on the third day, kind of Napoleon finally smarts and come with a real plan, which is not only attack that bridge. Um, it's um, again, I mean, uh, Masena was there, so he, he will go. Um, through uh, St. Bonifacio, so on the left link, uh, on the left flank, and then um, they hide on the right flank troops. And at some point, again, there is attack on a bridge, but the Austrians this time counterattack with huge number of troops, and then they get crushed on the both sides. So actually, this is um, on the third day, we see Napoleon actually coming with the, with the real plan and so on. and stories and then like Napoleonic propaganda kind of seizing on the moment with the flag. The moment with the flag is not even that important in the battle. It's like something by luck after that, like an um, anecdote that people keep sharing and so on. And also Napoleon's um, adjutant is killed in that, maybe because of that is um, the, whole, the whole moment with the flag. Actually, the moment of the flag, I just wanted, you know, for the popular culture, which battle is that? Because Arcole is not so well known, but it's like the imagery is very, very well known. The name is not so well known um, and what happens there. So actually we see um, in the third day that he has a plan. And also, I mean, it's a really bold movement, you know, you have three Austrian forces basically on three sides of you and then you go on the offensive, you know, proactively and going and cutting because that's actually why what Akule happens. What, what's the goal of Akule is to cut off and trap um, the bigger force, um, the bigger Austrian force and it's sort of also it's very well thought of because Arcule I mean today it's not the same terrain if you go but back then it, it used to be marshes so it's kind of very well he thinks about it like Austrians they have much more forces but it's the terrain you know if if it was just a couple of miles up there would be an advantage for the Austrians, you know, because it's not so much land. They could have like spread their forces. By Akule, they're kind of trapped. They're all like in um, concentrated, and it's like a. Um, so it's it's kind of really bold move to go on the offensive, um, not wait, you know, the, the Austrians to come and. Um, and crush him. Um, it's very well thought of the terrain. It's a difficult terrain also for Napoleon, like they have to build those ponton bridges first to cross a DJ 
river, then they have the second crossing. So it's not easy marshes and so on, but um, you see this, this workings, you know, even if the first two days on the ground, the plan is not so great. It's um, on the third day, Napoleon finally finds his mojo and um, creates the realities on the ground. Hercule is real strategic, it, it, it is a strategic victory because um, the Austrians coming from the east, they have to retreat. Um, the ones from the south, they finally, uh, coming from the north, they finally decide to attack, but they are not so, uh, they are successful. But then when they realize that um, the force from the east has been repelled, they also withdraw. Um, and then uh, Mantua, the commander in Mantua, like on a couple of days later, decides also to attack like really late because you have this lack of information. Like they're not so, con they're not well coordinated. But um, yeah, it basically the, the Austrian force after that is never the same. They, they try a couple of times, but it's never the same. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to go on a sort of similar line to Marcus, but I, I guess I'd sort of, think, you know, the, the whole flag thing, whether it's a, a myth or not, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because everyone remembers it, but that's definitely, in my view, strong leadership. Um, and I just wonder, as a sort of military commander, obviously leadership is a key aspect of command, but just what other um, attributes he sort of shows, other than sort of strong leadership or bravery in the battle, what that make him stand out as a good commander and this, therefore, being a key battle? What, what sort of... Um, more overall as a, a military commander does Napoleon demonstrate here at the battle that makes it a great battle? Well, it's taking the, um, um, taking the action to, I mean, a pro, this proactiveness, the decision to, to counterattack, to, um, to, to move on the Austrians before they attack him. I mean, Verona, if you go today, Verona, okay, some of the um, fortresses are not like the installations are not there but like Napoleon could have actually uh, hit in um, uh, in Verona like he could have hold out in Verona for some time but that's actually there was no strategic advantages for him just basically minus just holding there so you see that he's like proactive he decides to bring the war to the enemy and um, and also um, we have to think about he has um, something like 18,000 troops going to Ercole. He had to leave some troops in Mantua. He had to leave some troops in uh, Verona. Um, the troops before that, actually, he, it's a really bad situation. They, they are uh, starving. Um, they are decimated by, um, by uh, diseases. There are unrests in the camps. They actually have to put unrests in the camp. And somehow Napoleon managed to hold that army together marches it through the marshes of northern Italy and actually makes them attack that bridge over and over and over again because that bridge is attacked so many times like it's just blows your mind when you see the bridge um well now it's not anymore a wooden bridge but it's um uh, but it's still kind of narrow and you like Oh my God, I cannot imagine somebody inspiring and still pressing and still pressing uh, on that bridge. So it takes, um, takes something to be so, so good. Okay, let's turn the tables on Marcus now. Toulon, why might Toulon not be the greatest battle? Who wants to take that one first? 
Um, I was going to, I was going to be interested in Marcus's own view in terms of, obviously, Napoleon is um, not in overall command as you know he is later on um, in his career. And would you say, well, for two two sides of this really that a he gets credited with more than he really should do for um, success at Toulon, and and b d- does he sort of uh, you know a bit like this whole mythology of the the flag thing before does Napoleon just sort of really go for it in terms of trying to um, emphasize his own sort of um, greatness through at Toulon um, more than it, it should have really actually been um, account you know than it actually demonstrated at Toulon is I'd just be interested in your views on well to actually defend Napoleon oh, oh. <laughs> sip of tea um, <laughs> but you'd like that one um, to actually defend Napoleon, no, seriously, um, he, I think if we're going to give credit, like I said earlier, to Napoleon's subordinates later on, because Napoleon was never micromanaging everything on the battlefield, he wasn't everywhere, these, these were huge scale battles, then we've got to give credit, you know, to that uh, Austerlitz, to marshals here, there and everywhere, and let's not face it, you know, company level commanders and individual soldiers, really, then you've got to give Napoleon some credit for too long. Is it too much credit? Well, this is where the kind of, not even the cult Napoleon, we're far earlier than that. This is where the Napoleon saga kind of begins because it's his, one of his first victories, his first real victory. He hasn't even sh- you know, started shooting with a grape shot against pretty much unarmed rioters yet. So this is where he, he starts to make his name. He gets his rapid promotion from captain to uh, general brigade, uh, sorry, general... Oh, yeah, General Brigade. Um, so he gets three like, big stage uh, promotions. He ends the battle as major and then gets promoted afterwards. So it has a strong influence. And I think that is being recognised there. There's a lot of sources, are mostly because Napoleon is writing and calling his superior commanders idiots, fools, uh, I think it's the actual quote, which is not wise. Um, but there's a lot of sources of him actually like making that early decision and, and highlighting the, the little Gibraltar forts, which is not carried through correctly by his senior commanders. So I think it's fair to give him quite a bit of credit actually for too long. Now the final attack, not so much. And then the aftermath and the massacres, that's mixed, but there's certainly his, he's taking trying to take credit for it. So it's a very strange thing. Uh, so it's, it's a real mixed bag too long, but he's certainly showing his ability as an artillery commander, which is what he's meant to be down there doing. It's he's meant to be posted there as the the head of artillery, and he's seeing that his his overall commander is a painter, a court painter with very little military experience. So it's a difficult one, but I think it's one of the more interesting ones because you've got the revolutionary politics in there as well, a very mixed bag of allies the fleet uh, elements, but Napoleon getting the eye for ground and knowing where's the upper hand early on is certainly giving him uh, good credit as a, as a military commander that is showing some uh, great ability. Vanya? Um, so to seize up on the political side, um, yeah, I mean, can we say based on that battle that like, in a way we see here a little bit different side of Napoleon because we usually see him great tactician or so on. But like we see here, um, he is not such a great tactician, not great on that side, but he actually has the nose for the political side, for the greater 
to, to see in the bigger picture. That, that battle is like where we see him. Um, that makes a great battle because he has this understanding for the bigger picture. Yeah, I, the, the French Revolution is a time where people could join the army, uh, be elected to be their company captain within weeks. And then you'll see it lots if you follow lots of Napoleon's marshals. But it wasn't Napoleon that's making them generals. They are um, from captain to a staff general in like one or two years because they've shown some ability. So I think Napoleon's got a nose for ambition, but he's also got a sense that this is an opportunity. It's his first command. And he's not going down there as a, a battery commander. He's going down there as a captain in command of all the artillery. There's a lot of guns. I think like about 200 French guns. So this should be commanded by effectively a general. It was meant to be a colonel when he was injured on, on route. So he's got the ability that if he proves himself then, and yes, they say he's, he's got that nose. He, he's sending letters directly to Rose-Pierre, which is beyond bold. Um, but yeah, it, it could have backfired. I think that's where it would have been interesting that Rose-Pierre could have ordered, I think, him to go, actually, we'll remove you from command, not necessarily guilty. And or, you know, leading the second wave uh, an inch to the left and right, and we probably would have saved five million lives in the later Napoleonic Wars because Napoleon would have bled out. So it's, it's a fascinating what if. Um, but yeah, like you say, he's got this nose of politics that he's sniffing around and he's, he does it really well. So that's another way you can give him credit that he gets this very quick promotions during and afterwards too. So yeah, it's, it's a good move. Okay, let's turn this on Will then, last of all. Let's direct the artillery barrage onto Dr. Fletcher here. Who wants to start off with this one? Can I always, I always think about Jena Auerstadt not as much as Napoleonic victory. And I'm like, here you see my, um, I'm partial to the Prussians and Clausewitz and so on, but I see it as a um, Poso-Saxon screw up, major screw up, because we have like, okay, Clausewitz has one text, you know, Nachrichten von Preußen in ihren größten Katastrophe, about Prussia in uh, its worst catastrophe and so on, where he says like, well, we could have actually won, you know? So if it was um, full mobilization, because we know there is like one core in Prussia, uh, in province of, in pra of Prussia is not coming. And uh, if there was no like three chief of staffs and four commanders and um, all the other things, is it, did Napoleon actually won Janauerstadt or the Prussians and Saxons lost it? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And like, you know, below the, the radar of what I was saying, it, from my point of view that, yeah, the Prussian Saxon command and staff system is just absolutely horrendous. And it's this that um, leads to the reform of it, which is so important. And I think, um, Yes, I think you can, there is a case to be said that, I mean, they obviously did lose it, but also Napoleon, um, there's a, a number of points where he really didn't know what was going on or made sort of small mistakes or his subordinates made mistakes. I mean, I think overall, they're both basically facing a very difficult um, situation, um, which was, you know, full of confusion and um, both sides had um, command and staff issues that went uh, fairly drastically wrong and I think overall 
Um, it's it's going to be obviously a combination of both that the Saxons and Prussians lost it, but Napoleon did the better job, or his army did the better job, and his command and staff system did a better job of overcoming the sort of frictions of war that Clausewitz would obviously write about. So I think, yeah, there's obviously a case for um, who who lost or who won, but I think is is a bit of each at the end of the day. But good point. <laughs> I mean, I would have. Um... Something very similar. I think it was Napoleon who said when he saw uh, the Prussians uh, in 1813 that, oh, my God, these, these men have learned something. And we, here we've got in 1806 the Prussian army that pre-reforms. They haven't learned so much. Uh, yeah, I, I would slightly question how much announced that he, Napoleon was involved. Again, it's delegation uh, and at Jena, maybe he's got the numbers on his side already. Uh, but otherwise, I, I think and you asked the kind of question that I would have said that it seemed more like a Prussian squirrel, I think was her quote. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's how you take it, isn't it, about um, Auschwitz in terms of whether it's Napoleon's or not, but I definitely think his army was operating as one, and Davy did a very good job on behalf of Napoleon, but he clearly understood Napoleon's intent of what to do if you were caught on your own. So I think, um, in that sense, he, he wasn't just acting on his own, he was acting for Napoleon in close proximity to him. So um, definitely Napoleon sort of responsible for, for Auschwitz as well. Brilliant. Well, Vanya, Will, Marcus, this has been another great discussion. I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed it just as much as I have. Thank you very much for joining me for the second part of Napoleon's Greatest Battle. That was Marcus Cribb, Vanya Bellinger and Will Fletcher joining me for the second part of Napoleon's Greatest Battle. The opinions expressed by Vanya Bellinger in this interview are her own and do not represent the views of the United States government, the Department of Defence and the Department of the US Air Force. You can follow Vanya on Twitter at Vanya EF and her book Marie von Clausewitz, The Woman Behind the Making of On War is available online now. You can follow Will on Twitter at 1815Fletcher and Marcus at History. You can have your say on the discussion of what was Napoleon's greatest battle, both in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net and on Twitter, where a special poll is being held for you all to vote for your favourite out of the choices that you've just heard. Just search for at ZWhiteHistory and you'll find the tweet on my timeline. I'll be back in a few days with another instalment of Napoleon Month when I speak to Beatrice de Graaf on Napoleon, Diplomacy and State Security. In the meantime, please do take the time to like, share, retweet and leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform. It all helps in trying to spread the word and bring more people into the Napoleonicist fold. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been the second instalment of Napoleon's Greatest Battle, part of Napoleon Month here on The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, stay hopeful. And as always, thank you. For listening. Mom does 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.